Well, have you ever been on a flight where everything seems to be going normal, and then all of a sudden you hear the fastened seatbelts ding above your head? We all know that noise, right? Um, and, you, and you see the indicator light above your head, and that lights up. Shortly afterwards, you hear the captain come on the intercom and say, we'll be going through a bit of turbulence, so we ask that you remain seated with your seatbelts fastened. This is nothing out of the ordinary for most of us. Um, we wouldn't even bat an eye most of the time. Um, what would be a bit out of the ordinary is for the captain to continue in that statement and say, flight attendants, please take your seats. Put yourself in this situation. Maybe you sense a bit of apprehensiveness in the captain's voice, and you see the flight crew quickly putting away the snack cart and take a seat and strap their seatbelts. Then the plane starts to hit these bumps, and you feel it shifting, dropping at times, and being pushed around by the currents outside. You get a bit uneasy. How would we react to this? We might reach down, tighten our seatbelts, reach over, tighten our kids' seatbelts, might tuck that bag that we had at our feet under the seat a little bit more, maybe even brace ourselves on the arm handles, maybe take a glance at that flight crew. If we looked at them and their responses were still joking around, we might rest a bit easier because of the, they're professionals in this area. And if they aren't worried, we shouldn't be worried either. But what if we look at them and there's a look of terror on their faces? What if we look and see them bracing themselves on the seats or grabbing each other's hands while looking panicked? How would that make us feel? Would we continue to brush it off as just a little bit of turbulence and wouldn't be alarmed? We'd probably start worrying at this point, wouldn't we? When the flight crew who does this on a daily basis is scared, we most certainly would be too. If you can picture yourself in this situation, then you might, you might feel your palms getting a little clammy, your heart might be racing a little bit right now. Uh, this, is, this is because the thought of this scenario playing out in the air drums up anxiety in us. Um, and I'm not trying to make us anxious, but rather use a modern scenario to kind of give us a picture of what it looks like as we, as we are drawn into this story. As we look at this passage and we peer into this narrative, we can, in a way, imagine ourselves on this boat in the middle of a terrible storm. We might be able to think of what's going on in their heads, and as we think through this passage, maybe we can think of what they might be thinking of as well. Although some scholars view Jonah as a fairy tale, that's not reality. In fact, that's not how Jesus viewed it. He referenced the story of Jonah directly in Matthew 12. So our Lord viewed this as a historical narrative, and we should also. These are real people in real places at a real time in history. And what we see in Jonah is a story of God's grace unfolding before us as we read through the chapters. Now, Colin gave us the setting last sermon, and he took us through the first of the seven episodes, uh, which you can find in the beginning of your worship guide, with the background of what we know about Jonah. He's a prophet who was told by God to go to Nineveh, a large enemy city in Assyria, in Assyria and instead we see, we see Jonah run from God. He went the opposite way to where God had called him to go, paid, on, paid to get on a ship and to head as far west as he possibly could. He was called by God to go up and east to the city of Nineveh, and instead he went down and to the west, attempting to go to Tarshish. In every way possible, he's doing the exact opposite of what God commanded him to do. 
And as we're brought into this section, the second episode, we'll, take, we'll investigate, investigate three scenes, and I'll lay them out as three S's just for memory's sake. Um, the storm, the sailors, and the sacrifice. The entirety of this scene unfolds during this storm that we see here. And as I studied this, this passage, it seemed as though this scene, is, this scene is centered around the statement that Jonah makes in verse 9, I fear the Lord. So let's look at the storm. The first thing that we see in this passage is the author of Jonah intentionally drawing our attention to the action of God in verse 4 by stating, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God is the one acting here. This isn't a storm that happens by chance. It pops up out of nowhere from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, it's, now, it's put in place by Him for His purposes. The wording here leaves no doubt that the storm is in fact a direct result of God's action. In case we ever questioned how sovereign God is, we see here that He is sovereign over all of creation as to even control the weather. The wind, the sea, and this storm all obey His will when He commands it to. We also see that this storm happens directly after we were told that Jonah both ran from the Word of God and the presence of God in verses 1-3. to when we, What we learn from this storm is that it's a result of God's judgment on Jonah for his disobedience. God here is intervening in Jonah's life while he attempts to run from God. There's two things that I'd like to point out here uh, that you will see through this passage and the rest of the book as Jonah as well. First, Jonah's sins affect other people. This is the same for us as it was for Jonah. Our sins, our attempts to turn from both God's word and his presence, affect other people as well. This storm doesn't show up because Jonah is doing what God commanded him to, but rather the opposite. As, as, and just like Jonah, we don't live in a vacuum where there are no repercussions for our actions. Some sins have greater punishments than others, and some punishments don't show up immediately. But our sins affect our relationship both with God and and our relationship with others. Second, God is gracious to Jonah, even in his sin of running from him. Just as Colin pointed out last time, God provided the boat for Jonah to flee on. And here, God uses his creation to pursue Jonah in his flight. The worst thing that God could do would be to allow Jonah to flee and not care. To allow him to continue to go down down, down into this darkness where his sin had already taken him. But Jonah is his child. He's his prophet. So this would be against God's character to allow him to be cast away from God. So he pursues Jonah. As we open, as we open the service with the call to worship from Psalm 107, we saw, I'll give, I'll give thanks for, to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God has put his steadfast love upon Jonah, and we see here how he is drawing Jonah back to him, even by force if necessary. We also see that this isn't just any old storm that's threatening to break this ship apart. The ships of Tarshish show up multiple times throughout the Old Testament, and they were well known for being well-built and capable ships that they sailed the entirety of the Mediterranean Sea on their trade routes. These weren't just small fishing vessels 
since they were sailing to the westernmost parts of the known world at that time period. In this storm is where the rest of this episode unfolds, and now in verse 5 we're introduced to the second of the, of the S's, the sailors. Think back to that illustration in the beginning about the flight crew and, the, and translate that to these sailors. This is their livelihood, and they have almost certainly been through storms on the water before. But this storm's different. Suddenly, they have a sturdy ship built for long voyages that's threatening to splinter into a million pieces directly under their feet. And verse 5 states that the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. This is little g God, not the God of the Bible. These are pagan sailors who are polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods, which is, that was the norm for those outside of the covenant people of God during this time period. The sailors are operating in fear in this message And it's a legitimate fear of perishing because of the storm. They immediately go to their training. They rely on their training and or their instinct and and spring into action by throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And this is most likely to, to help maneuver it quicker and to help it float higher so that it wouldn't take on water and they wouldn't sink or capsize. Because that would that would almost certainly mean death for all of them. Again, This is their livelihood, and we see Jonah's sin costing them money. This is valuable cargo that they're throwing into the sea to save the ship and the lives of those on board. Notice the juxtaposition in verse 5. The sailors are working feverishly, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. While all these sailors are frantically running from the cargo hold, to the deck to throw more weight overboard, and also praying to their gods, where is Jonah? The only person, as far as we know, on this ship, who is in a covenant relationship with the creator of all things, including this storm that is currently battering them, is fast asleep. He's the only one who could truly cry out to the living God, but what is he doing? He's sleeping, continuing to try to run and hide from the presence of God Almighty. Instead of following the will of the living God and praying that the Lord would have mercy on these sailors, he rolls on his side, turns his back, and continues in his unrighteousness. This attitude is not befitting of a prophet. And it's also not befitting of a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't turn our backs when when a world that is perishing is crying out for help. Instead, we're called to seek the Lord and ask that he would be merciful so that many might come to know and love and serve him as well. During their many trips to to where the cargo was stored then, these sailors find Jonah, probably tucked away in in the deepest, darkest place, still sleeping, trying to skirt around his job that God had called him to. They run and grab the captain, and now the captain of the ship comes into the picture as he goes to wake Jonah up. He calls out to Jonah, probably thinking, how can you possibly be sleeping during this storm? And notice what his words are here. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Do the words in that second part of the phrase sound familiar to you? These words are so similar to God's command from verse 2 that Colin taught on last time, where he told Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. You have to think, 
that these words are reverberating with Jonah as well. The wording that God used to tell him to get up and go to preach to Nineveh so that they would not perish now turns into a pagan sea captain coming to him saying, get up and go pray to your God so that we may not perish. God is continuing to pursue Jonah. One commentator said, Jonah must have felt as though he was having a nightmare. These are the very words with which God had disturbed his pleasant life a few days before. Do you think he's starting to wake up? The entire crew is essentially now in a panic, and all attempts that they are making to save themselves is coming up short. So the captain tells the man that they don't even know to pray to his God too. Now we shouldn't assume that this captain is telling Jonah to pray to his God because the captain knows who Jonah's God is, but rather this is a a desperate attempt to cry out to any and all gods so that hopefully at least one will hear their cries and intervene. They're beyond the point of panic at this point, and the sailors had to decide, or they decided to turn to their last option that they could think of, casting lots to find out who had sinned against the gods on this ship, because to them, that was the only reason a storm like this was to happen. So they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And they take that as divine intervention, which it is, just not probably how they were thinking of at that time. Immediately, when the lot falls on Jonah, they just start peppering him with questions. What's your job? Where do you come from? What people group are you from? They want answers and fast, because the lots have decided it was the fault of Jonah, and the storm was not getting any calmer. It's now that we might think that Jonah is hopefully realizing something. Realizing that he is on a ship, somewhere out to sea, with nowhere else to run and nowhere else to hide, and all kinds of thoughts must be racing through his mind at this point. On top of that, they just cast lots and the lot fell right on him. Bad luck, right? No, he knows this isn't luck. As a servant of the living God, he doesn't believe in luck. He knows that all things fall within the sovereign control of God who he has been trying to run from. And now he is exposed. He is exposed to the sailors. He is exposed to the captain who woke him up. He is exposed in his own sins. This hidden sin, which he thought he had masterfully concealed, was, had now had the light shown on him. And he is exposed before the living God, without excuse, with nowhere else to run. This should make us think of what Christ said in Luke, 2, Luke 12, verses 2 to 3, that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Martin Luther said, not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even hell where he can crawl in. But he must expose himself to the gaze of all creatures and stand before them in his disgrace. God has many ways of bringing to light that which we thought we could cover up. He will expose our deepest and darkest sins, and we will give account for them. If not now, 
than on the day of judgment. There's no hiding from this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God. Think of what David said in Psalm 139 as he reflected on the presence of the Lord. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. If I take wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the, dark, the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah learns this lesson the hard way, the way some of us may have learned through the years. But we still try to hide and deceive others and God because of our fallenness. And just as God has almost certainly done to us, he uses, he does to Jonah, uses other people or some kind of situation to expose these hidden sins and call us back to him. These sailors get to the heart of the issue when they ask him questions and try to get to the bottom of this. What God is causing this calamity and why? Remember, they're polytheists who believe in many gods, and in their minds, these gods had different spheres of influence. They know that Jonah is responsible for the problem, but they want to get to the root cause of this happening so that they can fix it. They want to know which of his gods is responsible for this storm. The four questions in verse 8 are them trying to figure this out. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he answers these questions. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He stands there and tells them, I fear the Lord who made all things and in fact is sovereign over everything. He claims that he fears God, but his talk does not line up with his walk, and they recognize that. His claim that he is a Hebrew would be in stark contrast to much of the known world at that time. Jonah shows that he's a foreigner and that he is a monotheist, believing in one God who created the sea, which was currently threatening to kill them, and the dry land, which they would give anything at that point to get back to. The sailors are flabbergasted that he would disobey a god with this kind of power. These pagans recognize God's power and greatness, and they fear God. They fear what he might do to them. Now we come to the final S, the sacrifice. These sailors have gotten a glimpse of who this living God is, and that the, Hebrews, that, that the Hebrews serve, and they are petrified. It states that they were exceedingly afraid because Jonah had told them at some point that he was running from the presence of God. They see what Jonah knew but was foolishly trying to avoid, that, there, that no one can hide or run from the presence of this God. Their fifth and final question is one of action. What shall we do? How do we appease this God that can calm the seas and let us live? And now Jonah, as he has now come to realize that all of this is in fact because of him, tells them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me 
that the great tempest has come upon you. Jonah sees it fit that he should be punished for his wrongdoing and that it would be wise to stop running. He's at the end of his rope. He offers himself as a sacrifice on behalf of the sailors because he knows that God is gracious and would spare their lives if they were to throw him overboard. But the sailors don't want to just hurl him overboard for fear of offending this God even more. In their minds, if they throw him into the sea, into his certain death, they would be responsible, and then this God would turn his anger on them. They try once more to row their boat to the shore. It's to no avail. They get nowhere. Finally, at their wit's end, they resort to Jonah's idea. While they call out to God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as, you, as, as it pleased you. Notice here that they use the name Yahweh, capital letters, as emphasized probably in your Bible, just as Jonah did. They acknowledge the true God in, his, in this plea for mercy. They also ask that they not be held accountable for innocent blood, although we know Jonah is not innocent. We see a progression of fear throughout this passage from the sailors. In the beginning, we saw them fear the storm. Second, we saw that shift to a fear of the cause of the storm, namely that Jonah had offended a god. Third, we see them fear what will happen to them and if they offend this god for killing this man. Finally, we see a true fear of the Lord in them in verse 16 that shifts to worship of this God, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Proverbs 9.10 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord means to acknowledge Him in His rightful place. To respect, obey, and worship only the Lord is to fear Him. It appears that we see, from, we see this from these pagan sailors. God uses Jonah's sin to display his glory, and these sailors shift from a fear of the storm to a fear of the Lord and worship the living God. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, there are times in our lives when the Lord will employ us in his service despite our disobedience to demonstrate that the grace, the fruit, and the glory are entirely his. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he asks the Lord to take away a weakness of his and God responds, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. As we saw in this story, despite our weaknesses, by God's grace, he will accomplish his purposes even using our fallenness and working in spite of us if he sees fit. This is the power of the God that Jonah served. And this is the power of the God that these sailors turn to worship. And this is the power of the God that we serve. Jonah ran, God pursued. Jonah hid, God exposed. Throughout Jonah's sin and disobedience, God used it for his glory and for the sailor's good. Whether we're Christian or not, 
we should also see our own tendencies in this wayward prophet, fleeing, hiding from a God who we know sees all things and knows all things. Trying to run from him is futile. We know there is a God, and he has written his law in our hearts, as it says in Romans 2. When confronted with this truth, we know we are guilty. And by God's grace, I pray that we would not do as Jonah did, but rather do as the sailors did. Recognize the coming judgment and turn from our errant ways and believe in this gracious God. The grace and mercy of God is front and center in this story to these sailors who are saved from their certain doom. And later, in the New Testament, when the new covenant is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we literally see the mercy of God take human flesh. For us, viewing this story through the New Testament lens, we have the greater truth revealed to us that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice who was offered. Instead of a sinful man in Jonah, who was thrown into the water to appease the wrath of God, Christ was the perfect one who went to the cross willingly where the full cup of God's wrath was poured out on him as our sacrifice. The wrath that Christ took on the cross is way greater than the wrath of this storm. The the coming wrath of God that will be poured out against unrighteousness is way greater than the wrath of this or any storm. But if we, like the sailors, look to the living God, if we look to Jesus Christ, we, we too will witness the sea stop its raging. The wrath will be gone, appeased. It's paid in full by the true sacrifice who we worship, the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. He clothes us even now in his righteousness. And when the storm of God's wrath rages at the day of judgment, we will receive mercy, not the justice that we deserved. Because of this glory, glorious truth, I pray that we would claim, I fear the Lord, and that he would help us to live that out on, in our daily lives. I pray that God would expose these hidden sins and shape us more into the image of Christ. I pray that even in our downfalls and fallenness, that Christ would be glorified. And that as others and that others would see God at work through our lives and that many would turn to fear and worship this true God. Amen.